Hi, Journey. How are you doing today? Great to be together with all of you. Some months ago, I got this book in the mail called God Behaving Badly. Really intriguing title. It just leapt at me. Written by a guy named David T. Lamb. I started into it, and the whole time I was reading it, it took me a few months to get through it all. I was going, I've got to preach this stuff. I've got to preach this stuff because I want our church to wrestle with this stuff because there are, these are, for so many people who aren't connected to God or to his church, some of the very most challenging issues that anyone ever grapples with before they ever step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. And the burning question of the book, God Behaving Badly, the burning question of this whole series is this. How do you reconcile the loving God of the Old Testament with the harsh God of the New Testament? How do you reconcile the loving God of the Old Testament with the harsh God of the New Testament? And right now, some of you are having what I like to call the pucker moment, where you think I just made a very significant mistake, right? But the slide is right, what I said is right. Some of you are thinking, well, Brian misspoke. You haven't preached for a few weeks. You're all rusty. You can't read your notes, right? You're off kilter and so. Some of you thought that I was screwing up. You thought I meant to say, how did the mean God of the Old Testament morph into a nice guy like Jesus, right? That's what you think should be up on the slide or what I should have said, but that's not what I meant. I actually said what I meant to say. How do you reconcile the loving God of the Old Testament with the harsh God of the New Testament. Like, really, how, how do you do that? Because God in the Old Testament is consistently, over and over and over again, described as being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Look, Exodus chapter 34, verse six. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am, this is God talking about himself. I'm slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And then the book of Numbers, chapter 14. The Lord is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. That's God in the Old Testament of Scripture. But then along comes Jesus Christ, his life and ministry chronicled in the New Testament. And did you know that Jesus Christ spoke about hell more than anyone else in Scripture? As a matter of fact, the word hell doesn't even appear in English translations of the Old Testament of the Bible. Here's Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Whoa. If you call someone an idiot, ever done that? No show of hands. You don't have to put your hand up. You're in danger of being brought before the court. This is Jesus Christ talking. And if you curse someone, here it is, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus Christ said that. In Matthew chapter seven, he says this. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. And what's true is that the God of the Old and New Testaments can and is characterized by love again and again and again. But yet so often atheists, agnostics, even some followers of Jesus Christ, some Christians even, perceive the God of the Old Testament solely in negative light. 
which causes lots of people to wonder how they can possibly reconcile the harsh God of the Old Testament with the loving God of the New Testament. Because to a whole bunch of people, maybe even some of us, God seems angry, sexist, racist, and on and on and on we could go. Really? In short, the God of the Old Testament has a bad reputation, doesn't he? The God of the Old Testament has a bad reputation. Have you ever seen this cartoon? This is Gary Larson, the far side. The caption at the bottom says, God at his computer. And there he is, God sitting at his computer. The computer is displaying an image of a man walking underneath a piano that hangs precariously by a skinny, ever too skinny rope. And there's God watching this whole thing. And you can't see it, I know, but here it is. Now you can see it. His index finger poised over the smite key. About to... And that's funny, right? Ha ha. Like with most of Larson's comics, we laugh because, well, that's, that's funny. And while it's funny, it's also tragic, isn't it? It's really tragic. Because that right there is the only portrayal that so many people have of who God is. And they don't have to look at all very far in the Old Testament of Scripture to find numerous texts of Scripture that describe in great detail just how God smites and strikes and slays and even slaughters. And they've got proof text and like, look, 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 look. This is who God is. In the bumper video, we showed you a few examples of God being portrayed in pretty negative light, right? But there are a whole lot more than that running around in our world, isn't there? We showed you one clip from Bruce Almighty, but there's another scene, maybe you remember if you've seen the film, Bruce has just lost his job, he's melting down, and he's out on this highway, and he screams out to God, right? Smite me, almighty smiter! And then like three seconds later, he gets run over by a Mack truck. Remember that scene? And some of us, we cringe when we see and hear God referenced in those ways. But get this, what Bruce Almighty said to God in that modern day film, it's really in about the same vein as what the Old Testament prophet, a guy named Elijah, prayed to God. Let me set up the context of what Elijah said to God. Lots of you, this will be familiar for you. Elijah, the prophet of God in the Old Testament, he had just defeated the prophets of Baal and Asherah up on Mount Carmel. The story ring a bell? And it's one of the most stunning miracles in the whole of scripture in my opinion. At Elijah's request, the fire from heaven came down, burned up this altar, the bull that was being sacrificed on the altar, the rocks that made up the altar, the dust that was present on and around the altar, even consuming, the fire of God even consumed the water that was in this really deep trench that they had dug around the altar and filled up with water, like a big ditch filled with water. The fire consumed even the water out of the ditch was this stunning, amazing miracle of God, and it caused everybody present on Mount Carmel for their hearts to turn to God, this amazing victory. Elijah won the day in significant fashion. But right on the heels of this really crushing victory over his opponents, look at what Elijah prays, 1 Kings chapter 19. Then he, that's Elijah, he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, And he sat down under a solitary broom tree. It's like this scrubby little brush of a tree. You couldn't even really call it a tree. It's more like a scrub brush of some kind. Elijah, you can just picture him curling up under this scrubby little tree. 
And look what he prays, that he might die. Right, this astounding victory over the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he curls up under this broom tree and prays that he would die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. That sounds an awful lot like, smite me, almighty smiter, doesn't it? Bruce and Elijah, they're kind of two peas in a pod. Somewhere along the way, they've come to believe that smiting is in God's job description. And while we'll give Bruce Almighty a pass because, well, he probably doesn't know God all that well, but we can't say the same for Elijah, can we? Remember, Elijah's the guy who God so appreciated that he decided to spare him from having to die an earthly, physical death and swept him directly from life into heaven. Whoa. But the question they ask still remains. Is smiting really part of God's nature? Is that part of who God is? And it's pretty easy to brush aside portrayals of God from the far side in films like Bruce Almighty, but it gets a whole lot more difficult to dismiss views like those of the popular author Richard Dawkins. He wrote this best-selling book some years ago called The God Delusion. Look what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, that's a mouthful by the way, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. Whoa. Those are... Those are hard to dismiss, aren't they? And while I believe that Dawkins is dead wrong in his assessment of God and who he is, his views have touched a nerve, haven't they? Just simply judged by the number of books that he sold. Portraying God very, very negatively. Even the insurance industry, did you know this? Broadly knocks God. The insurance industry broadly knocks God. Ever thought about this? Whenever a disastrous event outside of human control, like a flood or an earthquake, a tornado, a hurricane, or the like strikes, ever notice what they call them, the insurance industry? What do they call it? An act of God. What's that suggest? Well, it suggests that whenever God acts, he doesn't do anything but wreak havoc. That must be who he is, people think. But you see, some of the problem is that lots and lots of people misrepresent the Bible in order to make a preconceived, assumed point about God and who he is. Even Christians, some of us, have been known to do that. And one of the easiest ways that anyone can misrepresent the scriptures is simply to ignore problematic or difficult sections of the Bible, right? We pick and choose. I like this part, this part resonates with me. This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't really like that part, so I'm just gonna. But in order for us to be true to the entire text of scripture, we've gotta look at the whole thing, both sides of an issue, and understand them within their context, and that's not easy. It's time-consuming, it's difficult, but understand this, the results are so worth it because our understanding of who God is becomes richer and richer and richer as a result. Oh, I see how all of that fits together is the goal. 
And down through church history, we've seen it over and over and over again. The differences between the Old and New Testaments of the Bible have been notoriously overrepresented. Even to the point that some people have perceived there to be two different gods. Now, you'll often hear me throughout this series reference the God of the Old Testament. That might seem to imply that there's some kind of a dichotomy. There's not. The Old Testament God is no different from the New Testament God, but often there's this perceived difference in the church as well as in pop culture. And that dichotomized, bifurcated portrayal of God has a long and storied history in Christianity. There was a guy named Marchand, very, very early church leader, Christian leader, in the AD 80 to 160 time frame, a couple thousand years ago. And he actually taught from his pulpit in his church that there were two distinct gods. And he said this, the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God of law and justice. And the God of the New Testament is a benevolent God of mercy and salvation. Marchand went on to reject the Old Testament as Christian scripture. That was the natural conclusion of his view of God. He grew an enormous church in the second century. However, in the mid-second century, they deemed him to be a heretic. Not true, Marchand. There are not two separate distinct gods. Yet to this very day, traces of his heresy persist within parts of the church. And here's what happens. If you dichotomize the view of the Old Testament and New Testament of Scripture, it leaves out this pesky little truth that Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. The Bible Jesus read and knew and lived into and out of was the Old Testament, which means that the value that Christ placed on the Old Testament of Scripture is seen over and over again in all of the references he makes to the Old Testament throughout his life and ministry. Jesus, right at the launch of his ministry, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy three different times. He's out in the desert being tempted by Satan, and Jesus quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and you know what he does? He's about to die, and he quotes the Old Testament book of Psalms as he breathes his last breath. Jesus was constantly mentioning the Old Testament law, the prophets, the Psalms, because Jesus held the Old Testament in the highest regard. He revered the Old Testament of Scripture. And that should matter to us to this very day because Jesus leaned heavily on the Old Testament to describe God and who he is and what he is like. Jesus leaned into the Old Testament to paint a picture of who God is in his day. One time Jesus was describing God as a vineyard owner in Matthew chapter 21. His description of God came right out of Isaiah chapter 5. Another time, Jesus was talking to a scribe, telling him that the God is just one God, Mark chapter 12, and he was quoting right from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy again. There was this scene near the end of Jesus' earthly life when the high priest, they had arrested him, and they asked Jesus if he was the Christ. By the way, if you haven't seen the film, The Son of God, you, sh you should go see it. I lead a group, a small group of high school guys around here, part of our 660 ministry, and I took those guys, high school guys, to see the Son of God on Friday night, opening night. And this was one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And remember what Jesus said? I am. What's that? Well, that's a reference to God's Old Testament name, Yahweh. Even in that moment, you put Jesus on the spot 
Are you really the Christ? And he summons the Old Testament to speak about who he is. Jesus described both God and himself as a bridegroom, as a shepherd, as a king, all references from the Old Testament of Scripture, which leads us to conclude that Jesus not only knew and revered the Old Testament, but get this, he identified completely with the God of the Old Testament. He wasn't saying like, yeah, dad was grumpy then and I'm sort of the happy man. No. He identified completely with the God of the Old Testament. And since Jesus was the one who knew his father very best of anyone ever, he knew that the main thing that God his father desired from people was love. Right? Jesus knew that better than anyone else about his father. And to reiterate his point that God his father is primarily concerned about love, what did he do? He goes to the Old Testament. He references the Old Testament. One time Jesus took a question from someone who asked him which one of the commands, which one of the Old Testament laws was the greatest. And again, Jesus answered with two commands from the Old Testament. The ones where God instructs people to love him completely and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Jesus boils it all down. Jesus knew first and foremost that Yahweh, the I am, is the God of love, but that often gets forgotten. All these negative perceptions of Yahweh contribute to the memory loss. And you know what happens? Damaging spiritual problems are often the result of distorted perceptions of who God is and what he is like. Right, like think about this one. Our perception of God will directly affect whether or not we pursue or avoid God. Right? If people believe, if you believe, if someone believes that the God of the Old Testament is harsh, unfair, cruel, why would anybody want anything to do with him? Who wants to be friends with the divine manifestation of Adolf Hitler? Really? Right? Or think about this one. The people in the Old Testament who knew God best, you know what they wanted? They wanted more than anything else in life in this world to be with him. They wanted to be with him. And they're the ones who knew him best, most intimately, most closely. Enoch and Noah, for example. Abraham and Jacob. Moses and Joshua. Deborah and Hannah. David and Solomon, Elijah and Elisha, they knew something about God that so many people to this very day miss. And I want our desire for God to match their desire for God. As well, negative perceptions of God also affect people's passion for engaging with him through his word. So many people feel guilty for not reading their Bibles, right? Anyone feel that way? Are you all caught up on your New Testament reading plan? How are you doing? You all caught up? Right? But so many people feel guilty for missing a day. I mi- oh, I missed a couple days. Like, ah, oh, right? Oh, crushing guilt. And then they do finally get around to reading Scripture. And they land maybe somewhere in the Old Testament. And then they spend 10 minutes reading commands like, don't wear wool and linen together. Wear tassels on the corners of all of your clothing. And so they come out of that like, seriously. 
Why in the world does God care about what we wear? Why would he give a rip about whether we wore interwoven garments or not? The devil gets to wear Prada, what, what about me? Seriously, though, even the most devout followers of Jesus often give up on reading the Old Testament after they struggle, slog through commands like those, like, come on, right? And then there's this one, and this is where we're going to land today. Our perception of God also affects what people think his followers will be like. One's perceptions of God also affects what we think his followers will be like. If God is really angry, sexist, and racist, wouldn't it naturally follow then that Christians would be angry, sexist, and racist as well? Maybe another way to say it would be like this. If Christians are angry, sexist, and racist, well then God must be too, right? Because they're following him. And and church, here's the deal. We have to calibrate those things so, so carefully, don't we? Because the truth is, how we live our lives, you and I, living our life every single day, it communicates to the world around us, rightly or wrongly, what God is like. How we live screams to the world around us, day in and day out, what God's like. And the rest of the world is watching. And I don't say that to you because I want to heap more guilt on your head, but because it's simply true. And it's part of the onus that we who follow Jesus Christ carry every single day. Our daughter Bailey, she's in sixth grade. She had a choir concert over at the big CJ Middle School. Joshua, our son, and I took Bailey over early. Bailey had to warm up her vocal cords and so. So while she did that, Joshua and I went over to the gym and we saved an entire row of seats for our family. You know, we take up a lot of space. I posted Joshua on one end of the bleacher row, me on the other, so that it would be more or less clear that we were saving the seats in between. We were about 30 minutes or so into our assignment to save those seats. Everything was going great to that point. People who asked if those seats between me and him were saved were really kind. Yes, I said, we have the rest of our family coming. They said, oh, great, we'll find another seat. But then a few minutes after the 30-minute mark, this 150-something couple came down from the row right behind us and sat squarely in the middle of our obviously reserved row. Now, they were closer to Joshua's end of the row than mine, so I looked down the row to make sure that Joshua would say something to them. Uh, He was lost in his iPhone, and he didn't even notice that anyone had sat in our row of Seats. So I politely leaned down the way and very, very politely said, our family is almost here and those seats are for them. The woman very quickly motioned up and down the row and said, there isn't anything on these seats indicating that they are saved. They are not saved and we're sitting here. It like took my breath away. I was like, oh, wow. I think I even said aloud, well, this is weird. <laughs> I was like, what, what, else, what else do you say? So I tried another one. I said, ma'am, my wife and the rest of our kids, we, we actually need all of these seats. We're very prolific at our house. And, and so 
would you mind finding another seat so that we can sit together? Uh, That's my son down there. I know he doesn't look like me, but we've been saving these seats for about 30 minutes now. And she said, well, we have to sit here because the man sitting behind my husband has very long legs. My husband is six feet two inches tall. He could not sit in front of that man. Now, Now my breath is completely like, I've been punched in the gut. I'm like, what in the world? I'm searching for a response, you know, like, scrolling through the Rolodex. What could I say? What could I say? The woman sitting right behind me, she paid a very clear attention to everything that unfolded. And she interjects, says to the seat-stealing woman, ma'am, <laughs> there are two aisle seats right over there that would be perfect for you and your husband. Why don't you sit there? I turned around and whispered, thank you. Thank you very much. The woman said, we're sitting right here, and I'm all through talking to you two about this. She waved her fingers just like that. So the quarters are now getting really tight, so everybody around us is fully aware of what's been going on. Now everybody around me is making comments about and to the intruding woman and her husband about where they thought they should sit. Some of them were seats that were not anywhere near the building, even. (laughs) Going on and on about how inconsiderate they were and so on and so forth. And I'm just sitting there. And I'm calibrating my response. And and this moment where I'm trying to calibrate my response is when my role, maybe you've had moments like this, where my role as a follower of Jesus Christ, my role as a Christian leader, my role as a guy who is supposed to be an example to other followers of Jesus Christ, where all that clashes with what everything inside of me, right, do you have ever had this? Wants to do and say to this couple who trespassed into our family's row of saved seats. Right, so my gears are grinding. And I just have to say that God has an incredibly wonderful sense of humor, especially in moments like these. Because as I was sitting there pondering what it was that I was going to do next, he was downloading, like literally whispering into my soul, all kinds of stuff about that couple's eternal destiny. (laughs) Right? Where God whispered into my soul, Brian, if you say even one of the things that you're thinking right now, you might wreck any chance that any follower of Jesus Christ ever has to build a redemptive bridge to these people. And I'm like, oh, of course, (laughs) right? But you know what I'm saying to God? I'm going like, you know, God, I don't want to think about their eternal destiny right now. I don't want to think about how if I say just one of the things that I'm thinking and feeling inside of me that it could totally derail God's reputation with them. I don't want to think about the fact that I might be the only Christ follower they've ever interacted with. Because God, I just want to win. I just want my family to have the seats that we'd saved for them for like 40 minutes now. I wanted that couple to show me the same respect that I would have shown them had our roles been reversed. And God just stuck his finger on my forehead and said, just let it go, Hopkins. I just, just let it go. They're bleacher seats in a gymnasium. Seriously. Let it go. The rest of your kids who are coming, they don't want to sit here anyway. <laughs> They'll find someplace else to play or sit somewhere else. They'll be fine. Just let it go. And so I took a deep breath, and I did. I just, 
let it go. I shut my mouth, and I sat there, and I didn't say a word to that woman or her husband. Dana got to plop down right next to him. I think that was fun for her. And I tell you all of that not to tell you how wonderful I am. Believe me. Like, not even close. I get it wrong way more than I get it right. But I tell you that story because I want all of us to have a hyper-awareness about the reality that people's perceptions of God are greatly influenced by the behavior of we who follow him. People's perceptions of God are greatly influenced by the behavior of we who follow him. You and I represent God. And we're either representing him well or we're damaging people's view of who he really is. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to explore problematic Old Testament passages. Passages in which God appears to behave badly. We're going to examine together negative perceptions of the God of the Old Testament along with a look at how the same, get this, corresponding characteristic is fully expressed in the life and behavior of Jesus Christ himself. Why would we do that? So that we can more accurately display and declare who God really is to people all around us every single day who are watching and asking and looking and wondering, what is God like? Who is God really? And we get to be, think about that, the privilege of us getting to be the ones who help them understand and know who God is through what we do and through what we say. It's a high, high challenge. And I think we're all up to it. I think we're all up to it. Take your stuff, if you would, and set it aside, and I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And would you, you and the Lord just press in to what it is that you're thinking and mulling over as a result of our conversation together. God, what's true is that you are so magnificent and so wonderful and so beautiful and so holy and so righteous and so just and so true. And God, we could go on and on and on extolling your attributes. And at the very end of the day, God, what's true with us, about us, is that we want to represent who you really are the very best way possible. We don't want to do things that interfere with people's right perception, right understanding of who you are and what you're about. Just like God, we don't wanna say things that misrepresent who you are, God, and what you're about. 
We want our lives and our words, God, to tell the truth about who you are. And sure, we're going to mess up and yes, God, you provide grace even for that. Even for us flubbing someone's perception of God, you're gracious. You're big enough, you're able enough to handle even that, God. So God, while you don't necessarily require us to defend you, you don't need us to defend you. We do desire to press into your word and uncover the full breadth of everything that you are. And so help us as we endeavor to do that over these weeks, God. That we wouldn't shy away from hard passages of scripture, that we would embrace them because they portray for us who you really, truly are. God, may our understanding of everything that you are and may our love for you, who you really are, be fully developed, Jesus, that we might see you. Help us, God, see you as you really are so that we might communicate who you really are through word and deed in this world. Because you're worth it, God. You're absolutely and entirely and utterly worth it. You're worth our everything, Jesus. And so, have it all. Our everything.